Well, the last time we were together, we began talking about angels and demons, and we covered uh, what is on this slide in front of you, and we covered part of what is on the next slide. So all I'm going to do is present, to, present this to you and, uh, and as a way of review and then move forward in our study of angels and demons. Let me remind those of you who've not been able to be with us uh, for good reasons that you've been in Awana. What we're doing is a series uh, called Doctrines for Living. Uh, every person in this room has a theology. You have a system of doctrine, every one of you. And your system of doctrine may be as simple as, I don't believe in doctrine. Well, that's your system of doctrine. Every one of us has a foundation upon which we stand by and from which we approach life every day. And that is either a solid biblical foundation, it is a compromised biblical foundation, or it's no biblical foundation at all. But all of us have a theological foundation upon which we stand. That is, we have we have certain things that we believe about God, certain things that we believe about Jesus, certain things we believe about the Holy Spirit, certain things we believe about how God saves sinners, certain things we believe about the church, certain things we believe about the return of Jesus at the end of the world. Now, as a believer, whatever it is that you believe, nobody should pay any attention to you if you can't substantiate what you believe in Scripture, you should not, you shouldn't expect anybody to listen to you. If your conversations about God are, well, I can tell you what I believe, and the person asks you, well, where did you get that from? If you can't take them to the Word of God and show them in the Word of God where you got to what you believe, and they dismiss you, they're doing what they should do because we cannot operate in the world in which we live based on what we think, what we feel, or what we uh, say we believe. We must be able to document what we believe and demonstrate what we believe on the basis of what is very clearly uh, communicated in Scripture. And one of the realities that is clearly communicated in Scripture is absolutely undeniable is that there is a world above us, beyond us, that's populated by angels and demons. There is a spiritual world that rules over this present world. And we need to understand that and know why that is true. So we see, number one, that angels are a part of the heavenly court in heaven that assembles with the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Angels are servants of God who minister to God. The angels give praise to God. The angels are occupied by the glory of God, particularly those special angels that we meet throughout Scripture in the book of Isaiah and in the book of the Revelation, the cherubim and the seraphim. Angels are messengers of God to commune with and to communicate to the children of God here. 
angels minister to you as a child of God according to the Word of God. Angels are servants of God who who bring God's Word to unfold for the people of God, God's plan. Now, in the work and ministry of angels... Uh, there is, there are special angels, and we know some of their names. I'm sure we don't know all of their names, but we know some of their names. We know that uh, there's an angel named Gabriel, and we know that there's an angel named Michael. Now, go to Daniel chapter 10, and just to see this, Daniel chapter 10, verses 18 through 21, just want to go to two places very quickly here while we're uh, talking about this. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? Now, this is an angelic appearance. This is is God making himself known in the presence of an angel for Now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Turn over to Jude, this uh, wonderfully uh, strange verse in Jude, Jude 9. But when the archangel, this is the lead angel, the head of the angelic host, When the archangel contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. An angel is not God. An angel is the servant of God. And in this dispute with the devil, He will not, the angel will not rebuke the devil because that is not his place. That is God's place. So angels are very specific beings that in the plans and purposes of God serve very specific functions. Now it's very encouraging, I think, biblically to know that angels are sent by God to the people of God to defend the people of God. Uh, Turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, and you'll see this in 2 Kings chapter 6. We begin reading in verse 15. Now here you have a, a, a conflict going on, and the people of God are outnumbered. They're in a battle, and they're going to lose this battle. And the servant of the man of God is pleading with the man of God not to engage the battle. But God has shown the the man of God, the angelic host that are fighting for him, 
And then we see in verse 15, we read these words. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And so the servant said to his master, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And the master said, verse 16, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What are these? These are the angelic hosts. These are the armies of God sent by God in Elisha's behalf to fight the battle for him. The servant could not see them. Nor can you. And you cannot see them, and the servant can't see them, unless, in this case, God answers Elisha's prayer and shows him this angelic host that is fighting in behalf of the people of God. So, there are angels all around. And there are angels that are sent to assist the people of God and to defend the people of God. To deny the reality of angels, even in the midst of the mystery, and there is great mystery in relationship to the angels, but to deny the reality of angels, even in the midst of the mystery, is to deny the absolute truth of the Word of God. What is at stake in the doctrine of angels is not angels. What's at stake is the inerrancy and infallibility and sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Word of God true? And do we believe it at every level, in every detail? And the answer I know we would give is absolutely. So we believe in the reality and in the ministry and in the function of angels. Now, there is among the angels one incredibly special angel. And he's introduced to us throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see in the Old Testament the phrase, the angel of the Lord, about whom is that phrase speaking? Huh? I heard that. I don't know who said it, but I heard it. Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. This is Jesus before the Word was made flesh. Jesus is active in the Old Testament. He's active everywhere in the Old Testament, but the terminology that is used of him is that he is beyond Gabriel and beyond Michael, and beyond all the other angels, he is the pre-incarnation of Jesus. 
Now, let's look at some of just a few of his appearances. About, uh, about two months ago, working on this material, and uh, it's been such a blessing to work on all of this material to get ready to teach it, I was studying uh, angelology, the, the doctrine of the angels, and I was beginning to study uh, the angel of the Lord, and I was reading one of my favorite scholars, a guy that's brilliant in terms of his insights into the Bible, and, and he, has a, he has a different take on the angel of the Lord than I do. He, he believes that the angel of the Lord is not a pre-incarnate uh, expression of Jesus, and so I love this guy, and I love his work, and I love what he does, so I take him very seriously. So I read very carefully what he wrote, and then about that time, I was introduced to a book that is 500 pages long, and it explores every occurrence in the Bible where we have the phrase, the angel of the Lord. And so I downloaded that book on my Kindle, and um, I began to read that book. I worked through every reference, every reference to the angel of the Lord, and it's very clear to me. It's convictingly and convincingly clear that every occurrence of the angel of the Lord is referring to Jesus before he came to earth. So let's go to Exodus 23. We're just going to work through just a few of these occurrences of the angel of the Lord. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 20. This is right before the covenant that God makes with his people is confirmed. And we have this passage. This is God talking to his people. They're getting ready to move toward the promised land. They've received the law of God. They've received from God how they are to live under the authority of the law of God. And then God says, verse 20, Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. An angel. He's going to guard you and guide you all the way to the place that he has prepared. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Do not let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. I am going to what? To prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, which is talking about the second coming. So that where I am, there you may be also. Now, Jesus speaks that in John 14, but the derivation of it is all the way back in Exodus 23. What he is doing with the old covenant people 
is what he's doing eternally for the new covenant church. Verse 21, pay careful attention to him, the angel. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Does that ring a bell? Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's connected. Everything in the Bible is interconnected, interlocked. It is one book, one author. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. That is, if you don't obey him, listen to him, follow him, you will not receive forgiveness of sins. An angel? Who can forgive sins? Not an angel. This is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate form of Jesus. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I will uh, To you, I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you will drive them out before you. You shall not make any covenant with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is Jesus. This is the angel of the Lord. Turn over to Numbers. We'll just do a few of these. Numbers 22. You know the account of Balaam and Balak. God is, uh, Balak is calling Balaam to come prophesy against Israel, and Balaam is a prophet who's going to do what God has called him to do. But he goes, not sure. And then we read in Numbers 22, beginning in verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he went. And what's the next phrase? Angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. There is a difference. He took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey 
saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Now, you might want to note this. This is an occasion in Scripture where a donkey had far more sense than a preacher. That's exactly what this is. The donkey sees Jesus, and he has a drawn sword. Wherever you see the drawn sword in the Bible, what does it represent everywhere? What is the sword of the Lord? It's the Word of God. You do not dismiss the Word of God. You do not defy the Word of God. You do not rebel against the Word of God. Our judgment comes, and the donkey knows this. So he turns aside. Balaam struck the donkey. Then the angel, verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. If you've been down any of those narrow paths in the city of Jerusalem, you know how narrow they are. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord second time, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Third time. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she has no option now. She lays down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Do you know you can get so stubborn in your rebellion against God that God knows you won't listen to him, but maybe you'll listen to a talking donkey? The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, You know you're in trouble when you start talking back to a donkey. Because you've made a fool of me. I wished I had... I had a sword in my hand. The sword belongs to Jesus, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened, the Lord opened. Who would this be? The Lord. Who is the Lord? God. God opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw what? He saw the angel of the Lord. God opened his eyes to see Jesus standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And what did Balaam do? He bowed down and he fell on his face. We don't worship angels. We worship God through Jesus Christ. Look at verses 36 and following in this same chapter. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. 
And from there he saw a fraction of the people. Balaam said to Balak, I can only do one thing. I can only speak what God puts in my mouth. Why? Because he had had a face-to-face encounter with the angel of the Lord. He had met Jesus. And I don't care whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, when you meet Jesus, it changes your life. And it changes your life forever. You're never the same because you have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go over to Judges. Uh, We could go to every Old Testament book. We could do this for weeks and weeks and weeks. There are large number of references. Judges 2, 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. Gilgal is a place of worship. Bochum is a place of weeping and repentance. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to you to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Now, back in Exodus 23, who was it that led the people into the promised land? It was the angel of the Lord. It was Jesus. You've got the same thing here. This is the angel of the Lord saying, this is what I've done for you. I am God the Son leading you. And I've called you to obedience, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side. And their gods shall be a snare to you. You know, it's an amazing thing. This is just kind of a, by the way, it's an amazing thing that... um, A.W. Tozer says that God will never use you until he breaks you. That in order to be useful to God, God has to break you somehow. Now, isn't it amazing that Jacob became useful to God when he wrestled with God, and from that encounter, he never walked right again. Never again. He limped everywhere he went. Balaam has this encounter with God. His donkey collapses under him, breaks his leg. He has that that issue with his leg from that point on. What does Paul call his dilemma? The same phrase that's used here. It was a thorn in the side. It was a thorn in his flesh. And he had it all his life. You know, you and I can become so full of ourselves and so prideful that in order to use us, if we keep pleading with God, do whatever you have to do to break me so you can use me, God will answer that prayer. And it may be something physical or relational or emotional that brings you to that place where you recognize that you're not God. God is God. And in order to serve God, you have to be broken so that you can come in humility before him. 
So now I say, verse 3, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they call the name of that place Bochum. Bochum means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, again, by the way, when you read the book of Judges, what is the repetitive refrain found throughout the book of Judges? What is it? The people did what was right in their own sight. But here at Bochum, they're weeping. Do you know that you can get to a place as a believer where you can weep over the felt absence of God, but not be repentant enough to do whatever it takes to know the joy of the fullness of the presence of God? What you're after is you just want life the way you once knew it. You don't want the life that God really has for you. Bochum can be a place of weeping that is intended to lead to a place of rejoicing. But to get to a place of rejoicing, we have to be broken at the point of wanting something more than what we perceive to be right for us. Well, let's go one other place. 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. Assyria had reared its head against Israel, and Assyria was making lots of noise. In fact, uh, the leader of the Assyrian forces came to Hezekiah in the presence of the people and warned them that they could not stand against the great Assyria. Hezekiah, you remember, went to Isaiah the prophet and asked for him to proclaim the truth to him, and Isaiah did that for him. Hezekiah then prayed to God and pleaded with God, and God answered his prayer. Second Kings verse 19, chapter 19, verse 32. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into his city or shoot an arrow there. This is one of the most powerful people in the ancient Near East during that period in the 8th century B.C. He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by that same way he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, the sacred city of the dwelling place of God. And that night, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnation of Jesus, went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. They died. Who killed them? Jesus he killed them. They were enemies of God. They were slain by the angel of the Lord. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, 
these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Azarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. It happened just like that. And it happened because God showed his sovereign providence to a king who had become so pompous that he said nobody could touch him. And God ordered that his two sons kill him, but prior to that he lost 185,000 of his people. The angel of the Lord is one of the most comforting presences in all the Bible because it shows us that when John says, in the beginning was the Word, before time ever was, Jesus was there. And then it's unfolded from Genesis through Malachi. Herman Bovink, great Dutch theologian, says the angel of the Lord is a true personal revelation and appearance of God, yet distinct from him. He is the second person of the Trinity making himself known. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a most important passage for us to understand how God is at work from Genesis through Revelation. And to understand the work of God from Genesis to Revelation, we must understand the unfolding plan of Scripture. This was in the uh, sermon outline this morning, but I didn't point it out, so I want to take the opportunity to point it out now. Do you know that God... God is so sovereign over all of history that God has given us the good grace to unfold his plan for all of human history from creation to consummation, from Genesis through Revelation. If you want to know what history is about, the first book you ought to read is what? The Bible. Because the Bible is the foundation of all of human history. Now, there's no way to teach history, read history, or learn history apart from knowing the truth of the Bible. Because the Bible is his story, and his story shapes your story, and my story, and every other story, the story of every nation, of every empire, of every people, of every territory, of every land, of every war, of everything. What is God doing? That is why the Bible is so important. That is why you take the Bible out of an educational curriculum. You take the core foundation for learning anything, about anything, because it's so basic. What is science? How can you do science without the Bible? Because the Bible teaches us about how God created an orderly world, and science is a wonderful gift of God for scientists to learn what God was doing In this orderly universe, you can't teach science without knowing and understanding that we don't live in a haphazard, run-by-chance-and-luck-and-fortune, good-fortune kind of world. 
Everything in the Bible is orchestrated by God, his unfolding plan, and everything in it points us to Jesus. So, I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. I think I've got the wrong book. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, let's go there. This must be right. Listen to what Paul says here. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, yes, it is, right. Our fathers were all under the cloud. That is the cloud of God's glory manifest in the cloud and the pillar of fire. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was who? When Moses struck that rock in the wilderness, who is the rock? It's Jesus. That's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. All of the Bible bearing witness to Jesus. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were overthrown by God's decree and by God's design. They were removed from God's grace into God's judgment because they failed to see God for who he was and to follow him in faith. Now look at verse 6. These things took place. All of the things we read in the Old Testament, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We are to learn from them. I can't let go of this until we all go together to Zechariah chapter 3. I don't ever read Zechariah 3 without shuddering. And I'm not shuddering in fear, I'm shuddering with joy, just great joy, overwhelming joy. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before... Joshua the high priest standing before who? The angel of the Lord. Who's he standing before? Standing before Jesus. Joshua. Standing before Joshua. Joshua standing before, in translation, Jesus, the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The fire of what? The fire of hell. The fire of judgment, the fire of the wrath of God, the fire to which all of us are destined from birth except for the grace of God and the gospel. 
Now, Joshua was standing before the angel. That is, he's standing before Jesus, and he's clothed with what kind of garments? Filthy garments. Does that ring a bell? Isaiah says, every bit of righteousness you and I have from birth is as what? Filthy rags. And Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, the angel of the Lord, Jesus, this is what he says, remove the filthy garments from him. He's a good guy. He's a wonderful man. He's a preacher boy. No. This is grace. This is great, marvelous, wonderful grace. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. That is, the word here is, I've lifted your sin from you. I've lifted your transgressions from you. I've lifted your disobedience. I've taken it from you. Can an angel do that? No. Who is this? This is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can do here what is done. I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is why we have to know the Bible, because when people ask you, hey, I understand people are saved, you say, by Jesus. And that's in the New Testament. Jesus didn't show up until after the Old Testament was written, and you say, oh, no, 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 no. No. Take them to Zechariah 3. And show them how people under the old covenant were saved the same way that we are saved. They look forward in anticipation of the one to come. And the one to come gets glimpses of glory all through the old covenant. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. And they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Jesus, standing by Joshua, once dirty and filthy and ruined, now clothed in the robes of royalty and righteousness because of the one who's standing by him. And the angel of the Lord, verse 6, solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of all the great armies of the angels of heaven. That's who the Lord of hosts is. That's what it means. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God saved Joshua, and God gave Joshua, just as he gives us, everything we need to obey him, and God expects his people to obey him as the outworking of his great grace in us. Here now... Verse 8, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for there are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Who is the branch? Who is the branch that is going to come in the fullness of time? This is Jesus, the root and offspring of David. Isaiah 11 points to this very clearly, as do other passages. 
For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What is that day when Jesus, when God removes the iniquity of his people, cleanses them of their sins? Uh, Yeah, that's what happened at the cross. And here is Zechariah, 600 years before the crucifixion happened, saying this is what's going to happen. In a single day, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under the vine and under the fig tree. That is, when you understand what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you will invite all of your neighbors to come to Jesus, all of your friends to come to Jesus, all of your family members to come to Jesus, all of your enemies to come to Jesus because you understand what he has done for you. God created the angels, and among those angels and above and beyond those angels, not among them, but above and beyond them, is one who is the angel of the Lord. Angels are created as free moral agents in in heaven just as, as he would create Adam and Eve as free moral agents upon the earth. But they're not only angels. There are demons. And all I've got time to do now is just introduce this tonight. G.K. Burkhauer, who is a brilliant Dutch theologian again, G.K. Burkhauer says there can be no genuine biblical theology without demonology. You can't know who God is in fullness unless you believe fully and biblically in demons. I pray you do. They're real. And they're a part of what what God teaches us in His Word. One of the great great dangers of liberal theology, liberal Bible teaching, is most liberal Bible teaching categorizes demons as a part of the world of myth and legend. They don't accept, liberal scholars and theologians do not accept the world of demons. In fact, they will say that that you can read other literature from other religions, from Judaism and from other religions, And they are categorized as legends, myths. And in order to be faithful in our day, we must see them in the same way. Because demons don't work in a world where we operate by logic and reason. And demons don't work in a world where what is real to us is what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch what we can feel, what we can document, what we can explore, what we can investigate, what we can explain. In about the year 1948, Rudolf Bultmann said, you can't have a world populated by demons in a world where we've learned to flip a switch and turn on electric lights. But again, you deny the reality and power of demons. Your issue is not demons. Your issue is the inerrancy, infallibility, and full sufficiency 
of the Word of God. The devil and demons are not godlike in shape or substance. We're not dualist as Christians. We don't think there's some big war going on and we don't know who's going to win yet. God's already won through the cross. He's defeated every power of darkness, every authority of rulership in this wicked age in which we live. God has won the victory for his people, his church. And yet the demons and the world they occupy are as real as the angels and the world they occupy. And when we come together next time, we're going to look at the origin of the devil. Where did the devil come from and where then did all these demonic hordes come from? The Bible uh, makes that relatively clear to us so we can understand uh, the role of the devil and the world of demons. Let me end this way. What you need to know as a believer about the demonic is that you live, you and I live in a world that is populated by the demonic. But in the United States of America, we don't see that so clearly because we've de- we've de- domesticated our demons. We've renamed them. It used to be that if a person was addicted to alcohol or drugs, there were two things we did. We identified them for what they are. We called them drunkards. That's the language of the KJV. It's very appropriate language. But we did something worse. We took that demonic power that creates that kind of addiction and we transformed it into a disease. We said this has nothing to do with the spiritual. Hey, it has everything to do with the spiritual. Because the root of every issue you and I face ever is spiritual. And it has to do with our relationship with God or lack thereof. So when we domesticate demons, we tame the language. And we come at demonic issues as if they are medical diseases. And we provide diagnosis for those medical diseases. Does it ever concern you that in our culture we treat some, what we call alcoholic and addicts, with exchange drugs? So we exchange one addiction for another and say they're all cured of their alcoholism? No, they're not. We have been used of demonic forces to deceive them about who they are and where they are. We've just tamed the demonic. But this is what I want you to know. No demon can occupy your life as a believer. Because who occupies your life? The power of the devil can't live in the domain inhabited by the power of God. And when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit enters your life and indwells your life as the primary motivating person and power in your life. Demons can occupy you, but can demons can assault you 
and they can attack you, and they can distress you, and they can disturb you. And their goal is to get you so captured by darkness that you can't even see to the point of loving and living in the light of Jesus. We need to know they're real. And we need to know that though they cannot occupy your life or my life as believers, you ready for this? The more in love with Jesus you become and the more you commit, you, you become deeply committed to doing in your life whatever God wants you to do to honor Jesus and to serve Jesus, the more the demonic will come after you. And that's very real. So we need to be aware of the source of the demonic and how they operate in the world and how much power or lack thereof they really have. Well, thanks for listening, paying attention. I hope this is helpful to you. And um, by the way, if at any point you want any of these notes, just tell me. I don't, I, I don't, I don't copyright these notes. <laughs> I'm not making anything off of them, so if you want them, just let me know. I'll be glad to copy them for you. I'd love for you to have them study them because we're, we're like flying through this material. Father, we are grateful for this day you've given us. What a wonderful day of worship we've enjoyed uh, together here, and uh, thank you for this night. I thank you, Lord, for being a part of a church where when we talk about angels and demons, uh, nobody thinks that this, is, um, <laughs> that this is beyond us or beneath us to talk about this. This is right because it's a, it's a part of the heart and soul of your absolute truth. And we want to be faithful to your truth. We don't want to listen to the secular world in terms of what it is teaching us about these kinds of things we want to pay very close attention to you and pay very close attention to your word. And God, we pray for this week and the various activities in which you are involved. We pray that you would grow us most of all in relationship to Jesus and increase our passion, God, to see others come to know him and to love him and to serve him. Watch over Joanne tonight, we pray, and we pray that you would provide for her needs and whatever is going on, something is growing on, that you would help them to uh, find what it is. Otherwise, we will just say, in the name of Jesus and for the glory of your name, you healed her, and we praise you for that. Dismiss us now with your grace and blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.